If you didn't get a handout, there is a stack of handouts on the music stand back there. And just a reminder, what we're doing uh, this, uh, for this hour is the first half hour is on the study, 2 Peter 3, and then promptly at um, 10 o'clock we'll have uh, Chuck present the church planting um, effort he's going to be engaged in, he and Celia. So that uh, doesn't give us too much time for the study of 2 Peter 3, but I'm sure it'll be useful to us all. Let's begin with a word of prayer, and then I'll read 2 Peter 3. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this study in 2 Peter. We thank you that we have seen your, your word um, exalted. We've seen the emphasis of knowledge versus myth. And Lord, we pray that you would, through this chapter, uh, guide us again into all truth by the power of your Spirit. We thank you, Lord, also for the opportunity for us to hear from Chuck concerning uh, the church plant and what a wonderful uh, opportunity that, that will be for them and, and for your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here is Second Peter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in, the lo- in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Well, you see from the outline, the uh, final point here is the earth's end is not myth. Noted the contrast between knowledge and myth that uh, Peter 
gives us each, uh, in each of these chapters. We'll look at the scoffers, the day, and the sanctification of the beloved here in these verses. So we've, we've seen, especially in chapter 2, that there are false teachers among the, the church here in these areas. And they have promoted all kinds of false teaching. But we see what their, the primary message is by Peter. It's found in verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So the message is, the day of the Lord will not come. Remember, that's their argument. That's their statement, rather. And their motive for, for saying this, Peter, inspired by the Spirit, helps us to see their motive, is found in verse 5, or uh, rather in verse 4 still. Um, no, it's verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, the scoffers will come the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So remember that false proclamations are for the um, for the interest of the self. Now, of course, as we've said before, these false teachers most likely are not thinking, yeah, this is a false teaching and we know it is false, uh, but we want you to believe it anyways, though I imagine some are in- intentionally deceiving in that way. But often what the case is when, with false teachers is they are so uh, significantly twisting the Scriptures that they end up you know, believing these deceptions themselves. They believe these lies themselves. But the motive, as it is for every false belief, the motive is the fulfillment of whatever sinful passions remain in the heart. Improper motive is not sufficient to dismiss an argument, but it is cause for suspicion. You remember in Philippians 1, we see in verses 15 through 18, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Of course, the difference between what Paul is speaking of in Philippians and what Peter is speaking of in Second Peter is there are different messages being proclaimed. The similarity that I'm drawing out here is that sometimes there is a false motive or a pretense. And for, for Paul, his concern is if the truth of Christ is really being proclaimed, then okay. Uh, that's really what matters most. Now, in Peter's case, the truth of the gospel is not being proclaimed. There is a fundamental tenet of, Christian, of the Christian faith that is being denied. It is the coming day of the Lord. Their line of argument, as we've uh, already noted in verse 4, is there hasn't been a coming of the Lord. Uh, this is found in verse 4 again. Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. We haven't seen the coming of the Lord. 
Therefore, there must not be a coming of the Lord. There won't be one in the future because there hasn't been one, which is a bit um, strange way of, uh, of speaking, of arguing. How would you analyze that argument, the, the reason given? There has been a coming of the Lord. Yeah, do you want to, I know you want to explain what you mean there. Sure, the incarnation, okay. So the incarnation, do you think, necessitates a second coming? Okay. Christ would agree with you. Yeah, yes. Well, I mean, that argument is true for anything until the first time it happens. Mm-hmm. True. Of, of course, you guys all know the great baseball movie for a love of the game, and the baseball uh, pitcher who arrives a little late to the to the game is his final game. When asked by the coach, you know, didn't know if you were going to show, and he says, "Well, I've, have I never not shown? Have I have I ever not shown? I've always been here." And the coach says, "Well, yeah, that's true for everyone until they don't show up." It's true. Just because the sun has, uh, has risen does not mean it will always rise. And for past events, they don't lead inexorably to the same future. Just because there hasn't been a final coming doesn't mean that there won't be. And in fact, in the Old Testament, we have seen so many instances of a coming of the Lord. You just read the the major and minor prophets, and you see there are many instances of a coming in judgment. Now, and and Joan already anticipated this question. How would you answer their question, where is the promise of his coming? Because that's what they're saying. That's how they're scoffing at these Christians. Well, where is the promise of his coming? When did he ever promise he would come again? You don't need to give me a chapter and verse if you if you don't know it, that's fine. But okay, the last sentence of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And didn't he also often talk about the Son of Man coming in His glory? That phrase Jesus said a few times. He did. He spoke a lot of His coming and glory, and those. Um, would would see his glory, sun coming in coming in glory. Yep. Remember Jesus' parting words to his disciples. Yeah, you know, just before he ascends to the Father, he says he's going to come again. Remember that, and he's going to give them the Spirit. In the interim, not that the Spirit is going to leave when he comes again, but the Spirit will be poured out upon them in Pentecost. So our Lord, over and over in the Gospels and uh, in the beginning of Acts, and the apostles, of course, argued this way, he emphasized that he is coming again. That's one of the fundamental 
tenets of Christianity. He will come again. This is, this is not it. This is not the end of the, the Christian walk. Christ will come again. Praise be to God. Well, their, uh, their oversight is mistaken, uh, and it is deliberately, there is a deliberate uh, ignorance here in verse 5, for they deliberately overlook this fact. So it's just convenient for these false teachers, these scoffers, to overlook this fact. Remember, uh, false teaching usually has some semblance of truth, or there is something in Scripture that people are using. And so, as Peter will say later on, there's this twisting. So they have part of the picture, but they don't have the whole picture. There is a deliberate oversight here, uh, a deliberate ignorance. Again, because the desire uh, to keep one's sin and perhaps keep one's reputation, influence, uh, following is so uh, great in the person's heart that he just casts aside whatever truth there is that would combat his false teaching. They overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So the word that created the world is the same word by which the world will be judged, and this judgment will take place at the Lord's coming. So what is this day that Peter speaks of? Of course, again, it is the, the day of the Lord that's coming, a day at which, uh, in which righteousness dwells. Notice the contrast in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact. So the scoffers, false teachers, are deliberately overlooking Scripture to um, warrant or to confirm what they believe, what they are propounding. And he says, don't be like those false teachers. Don't be like those scoffers. Do not overlook the Word of God. Do not overlook the facts of Scripture. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. So don't think that the Lord is operating according to your timeline. And that's how the scoffers erred. They thought, well, there hadn't been a coming since our fathers fell asleep. Clearly there won't be one. And Peter says, well, that's, your, that's their human timeline. They're trying to fit God into this particular chronology that he must have come back in a certain period of time, and he hasn't, so of course he won't ever. And that's, uh, that just shows the autonomy, the attempt at um, autonomous man to determine the things of God. But the Christians are, are not to be like that. They are to uh, not overlook that fact uh, that the Lord um, does not operate according to our timeline. And not only that, but uh, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. And in verse 15, this patience of the Lord that we see in 
verse 9, we see in verse 15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Consider it a blessing that the Lord is patient. What if he had, what if he had come back before you, were, uh, before you were saved? So you're not the one who determines when the Lord will come back, and the fact that he hasn't come back is actually a good thing for his beloved. Now, verse 9. The Arminians, or non-Calvinists, love to throw verse 9 in our faces and say, well, there you go. Uh, Jesus died for everyone. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some counsel on us, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what's usually quoted is the not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There it is. But we have to look at the context now, don't we? Who is he writing to? Well, look at verse 8 also. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Talking to you, Christians. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some counsel on us, but is patient toward you, dear ones, saints. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all. So the any and the all must be in reference to the beloved. must be in reference to the elect, the saints, the church. The Lord has his elect. The Lord knows whose are his. And the Lord has the means by which he draws the elect to himself. And those means get carried out in history. The preaching of the gospel. The planting of churches. And on and on. Well, the Lord wants to gather all of those. The Father is going to gather all of his elect that are uh, created at various times in history. And so do not count the Lord's patience as slowness to fulfill his promise, but as a blessing that he will bring all of his people to a place of repentance and salvation. This day is a sudden day. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It's a sudden day. And the um, imagery that we are given here is it's similar to a thief. Now, if you are like the Mock family, you perhaps watch Home Alone every single Christmas time. At least the first two, not, not the others. Uh, did we watch the third one? We didn't watch the third one. Okay, no. Uh, but it was, I don't know if it's the first or second one. I think, yes, yeah, the first one. The, the thieves, they, uh, they don't know that Kevin McAllister is hearing. But they say, right, out, right in front of the house, pretty loudly, we're going to come back around 9 o'clock. Okay, well, this is exactly what... Uh, little McAllister needs to know so that he can then prepare uh, what looks like a, a party and um, there are people home. Thieves don't announce when they're coming. That's part of the humor of that line. They're foolish. They're not really good thieves. There needs to be that element of surprise. 
And the day of the Lord is going to be a surprise. It's going to come upon all of creation suddenly. So that means there, there ought to be preparation for that coming day, which we look at in just a, in a minute. But we see that the day is dissolved. It's, the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. There's language of dissolution as well in verse 12, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. This is dissolution uh, through cleansing, not through um, utter annihilation of the good creation. This is not a, a new creation ex nihilo out of nothing. Okay, the analogy that Peter gives us is the flood narrative. And you know that the Lord uh, wiped out the ungodly, cleansed creation through the flood, but he didn't start over with now day one and then day two, day three. He didn't do that. Okay, it was a cleansing. And uh, I think that's how we ought to understand the, the coming of the Lord, not a, a recreation uh, uh, ex nihilo, but a thorough cleansing of God's good creation. Getting rid of all of the, the bad stuff, all the defilements, the impurities. Now, because of this delayed dissolution, we are called, for, called to have a consecrated conduct. We have um, coming judgment. Okay, it's going to happen. We saw in 2 Peter 2 that the ungodly will be judged and the righteous will be preserved. So you have the coming judgment and you have uh, the Lord's present patience. These two are then the motive for godly living, which is different from how some of us might initially reason. We might think, well, the world is going to explode, so why bother behaving? The Lord's just going to get rid of all of this. I can just live however I want. And Peter is not giving us the okay for that kind of conduct. He's saying, the Lord's coming back, and he's patient, so how should you behave? Should you not behave in holy ways? He says, we even hasten the day. Um, let's see where... What's the, uh, the verse there for hastening? Twelve, okay. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. That verse intrigues me, has intrigued me for a long time. The Lord uses our godly growth to hasten his day, which is to say there is some proportionate, um, remember the Lord works through means. So there is, God has set a time when he's going to come back. There's no, and that's fixed. There, there cannot, it's not going to, it's not like God says, well, uh, let me rethink this. No, there is a time that the Lord alone knows when he's going to come back. But he has fi fixed also the means. And the means, some of the means anyways, are the uh, increased godly living of the saints. If he wants us to behave well, uh, he wants us to behave well, 
Because by doing that, it says we hasten the coming of the day of God. What are we then to expect but um, holiness in creation? Godly living. Of course, this is not to say that Christians will be perfect saints. But the Lord uses even our uh, striving after holiness, even our godly growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, as um, a marker of his coming. So to answer the question, when the Son comes back, will he find faith? Absolutely he will. Yeah. He will find faith and he will find people um, obedient to his will, following him, loving him, and loving the church for whom Christ died. And we are to hasten the day and have expectant hearts. We, we could say um, anxiously await this final state here, new heavens and earth. But it says, verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is why then we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know that his will is done in heaven and we seek to do his will here on earth. And one day when he comes again, that heaven and earth will, will meet and there will be righteousness ruling over all. What a, what a, what a day that'll be. Well, these final words of Peter's here, um, it's just keying in on some of the, the ways that people approach the scriptures. They often twist them. What's remarkable here is that the, whole, the canon hasn't been finally written yet. Uh, it's still in the works, if you will. Second Peter is not the last book in the New Testament to have been written. But we see that even the authors of the New Testament letters acknowledge their own writings and the writings of the others as Scripture. So Peter puts Paul's writings on the same level as the Old Testament Scriptures. Just as scoffers twisted the Old Testament Scriptures, so people today, in Peter's day, are twisting Paul's writings, which Peter admits are at times difficult to understand, but uh, that doesn't make them any less scriptural. So they are scripture. And whenever there is scripture, whenever there are scoffers, then those scoffers, the false teachers, will twist the word of God. Again, this is a call for all of us to be uh, deep into the word of God. But they, the scriptures, are always for our growth, our stability. Remember, Peter doesn't want the people to be unstable. He wants to stir them up by a reminder. He wants them to, be, uh, to have that stable uh, foundation on which their faith stands. And they cannot have that stability if they avoid the sure foundation of the Scriptures. So even towards the end here, uh, it's kind of like I said, Second Peter is, is kind of like Paul's Second Timothy. There's that exhortation to um, be committed to the scriptures because they are profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And here in 2 Peter 3, they are for 
the elect's own stability and growth in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. That's all we have time for here in Second Peter. So let me invite the Reverend Dr. Chuck Williams here.